please find Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, uh, we will be looking at verses 16 and 17 together as we uh, stop and, and think uh, about really what the book of Romans is all about because these verses serve functionally as the thesis statement for the book. But more than that, think about what Paul's life was about, what, what passion drove him, and ask ourselves, should we have the same kind of passion for the same kind of things that Paul had his passion for? So we've got a lot to do today, and I, uh, I, think, I think we can be encouraged as a result. So Paul begins uh, with these words. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, we need to understand that, that everything that he has been writing in the first 15 verses is feeding his need to say this statement. And, and it's really important, I think, to understand why he felt the need to make this really kind of almost confrontational statement. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul, if you'll remember, had never been to Rome. He had never visited these Roman churches, these Roman Christians. And if you and I were told, you know, maybe the greatest Christian who has ever lived is going to visit our city, visit our congregation, we might be super excited. But not everybody was thrilled that Paul was coming. In particular, there were a group of people, Christians from a Jewish background, who, from what we can gather as we go through the book, weren't excited about Paul showing up in their community and in their churches altogether. Because, you see, Paul had this radical message that Jesus saves apart from the Jewish faith. In the early decades of Christianity, everybody came to faith in Jesus Christ through the context of the Jewish religion. They believed that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, and so they put their faith in him. But they also continued on some level to put their faith in the rituals and the practices of the Jewish religion. And so uh, for, for the early Christians, their, their relationship with Christ could best be described as the truest, most perfect form of Judaism. And so the gospel that they proclaimed tended to be Jesus and the Jewish faith. But Paul comes along and Paul begins to proclaim that it's not Jesus and the Jewish faith. It's just Jesus. And this becomes evident as he begins to proclaim the gospel to non-Jewish people, the Gentiles of the world. He begins to proclaim to them it's just Jesus and you have people claiming to come to faith in Jesus Christ, who were not hearing at all about any need for the practice of the Jewish faith. And this was Paul's MO. This is what he was known for. So it goes without saying that they understood what he was saying in verse 14, where he said, I'm under obligation, both the Greeks, barbarians, wise, foolish, that, that he was saying, I'm called by God not to proclaim the gospel in the Jewish synagogues. I am called of God to proclaim the gospel to those who are Gentiles, who are of the heathen and pagan nations apart from the Jewish faith. That's who I'm called to proclaim the gospel to. 
And he says, I'm eager to come and preach this gospel for the Gentiles in Rome with you. And to that, a certain group of those Roman Christians would say, well, I'm not all that fired up about that. I, <laughs> I just soon you stay away. And Paul, knowing that he has critics out there, says this, I am not ashamed of this gospel of Jesus and Jesus alone. Even though you may be threatened by it, even though you may not quite understand it, even if it sounds like religious chaos to you that just faith in Jesus saves, I'm not ashamed of it at all. Now, we're about to stair-step our way through the remainder of these two verses. And I need to say to you that I am indebted to the framework that we will use in going through these verses to Pastor Micah, our campus pastor at the Ridgeview campus. He is the parent of a four-year-old, which means that he is in the why stage of parenting. He has a little daughter, Charlotte. Many of you know her. And she's at the stage right now where she asks why about everything. Why must I eat vegetables? Why must I go to bed at this particular time? Why can't I throw my brother off the back porch? Why, why, why? All of the whys. And perhaps it's because Micah is in the why framework of parenting that he began to ask why as he journeyed through these verses. And it helped all of us who were studying at the time see these verses, I think, more clearly. So I'm going to use that with you. So Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And we ask, why? And he says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the power of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. It is the ability from heaven, from God, to save people, all people, who would, he says, believe. Now let's make sure we understand in Paul's frame of mind what believe means. I'm afraid in the modern world, to believe something as it relates to Jesus, to believe in Jesus, is simply to say, I agree to a certain set of facts about Jesus and ascribe them to be true. I know some things about Jesus and affirm the truthfulness of it. And so our gospel in the, the modern church tends to be know some things about Jesus, confess them to be true, and you will be saved. But that is not what Paul means when he says it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. He is saying it is the power of God, this gospel of which I am not ashamed, this gospel of Jesus and Jesus alone is the power of God to save for all who will build their life around it who will place their absolute trust in Jesus and Jesus only and not trust in other things to save them. Think of it this way. I know intellectually that if I jump out of an airplane with a parachute on, that that parachute will physically carry me to the ground and I won't splatter like a bug. But I don't believe it until I jump out of the plane. All right, so, so here's, here's what Paul is saying about the gospel of which he's not ashamed. He's saying there are basic 
facts about Jesus that you must confess. You must believe that Jesus alone has the capacity to save because he lived a sinless life, because he died a, a sacrifice on the cross for your sins and paid the penalty before God for your sins. You must know that to be true. But what I'm calling you to do is to also believe that, to place your trust in that. And he says, if you do that, if you place your trust in that and that alone, you will be saved. That belief, putting your trust in the life and work of Jesus, is the power of God to save. Then he interestingly says, that's true of the Jew first and then the Gentile. Now what does he mean by that? Remembering he's got critics out there in his audience who, who think that, uh, that, that this gospel that, that Paul is proclaiming is, is really kind of a perversion of the gospel because it's absent the Jewish religion. Paul says it's the power of God to save even if you're a Jew, especially if you're a Jew. Jesus was a Jewish man who was the Jewish Messiah, who was the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. So if the gospel is true for anybody, if this, if, this, if this confession of faith, if this gospel of which I'm not ashamed is true for anyone, it would be true for the Jewish people. So it's, it's no different for you than it is the Gentiles who are believing that Jesus and Jesus alone is the pathway to salvation. So let's back up. Paul makes this, this kind of line in the sand statement, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why are you not ashamed of the gospel, Paul? Because it is the power of God to save everyone. So let's ask, why? Why is it the power of God to save everyone? He goes on to say, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So it reveals the righteousness of God. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God to save. Why is it the power of God to save? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now, I think just like we had to spend a little bit of time thinking about the word believe, we need to think a little bit about the word righteous or righteousness. And I think most of us, when we see that word, our default is to think of that word in terms of goodness. I am a parent of the era of the Finding Nemo movies. And so anytime I hear the word righteous, I can't help but think of Crash the Turtle going, Righteous! Righteous! As he rides the currents through the ocean. What is Crash the Turtle saying? He's saying, this is good. This is good. We tend to see goodness when we see the word righteousness. But that's not what Paul means here. He's not saying that it is the power of God to save everyone because it shows us how good God is. He is saying that it is the power of God to save everyone because it shows how we can achieve or attain righteousness or right standing before God. That's what he means. So he's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God to save everyone. Why is it the power of God to save everyone? Because it shows us how to be right with God. And then he says it shows us that. From faith for faith. Meaning what? Meaning that it shows us how to be right with God by placing our faith in Jesus, going back, looping back to that concept of believing in the previous verse. It shows us how to be right with God by placing our faith in Jesus and by continuing to place our faith in Jesus. 
It's not that we come to salvation in Jesus and that's it. And we cash that in when we die. It is by placing our faith in Jesus and then continuing to live a life with our faith in Jesus and Jesus alone to save us that we are able to be made right with God. So backing up again, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is the power of God to save everyone. Why is it the power of God to save everyone? Because it shows us how to be right with God. Okay, well, why does it show us how to be right with God? I mean, why, why, why does it do that? Well, he finishes by saying this, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul does something very strategic here. Again, with his critics in mind, he reaches back to the Old Testament. He grabs the Bible that they claimed to follow and says, yours, and because I'm a Jewish man, Paul would be saying, my very own scriptures point to this as the answer to the problem of man's separation from God. We live by faith. We live by placing our faith, our trust in Christ and Christ alone. So, those of you that think that I've wandered off reservation, Paul is saying, and I'm preaching something entirely new, I'm telling you that, that I'm just carrying the water of the Old Testament I'm just carrying the water of Scripture. This is not new. This is the way God designed it ultimately to work. So, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God to save everyone. Why is it the power of God to save everyone? Because it shows us how to be right with God. Well, why does it show us how to be right with God? Because the Old Testament Scriptures tell us that this was God's plan all along. That it's faith and not moral activity. And we might then ask... Well, why is it faith and not moral activity? And you'll just have to come back the next six weeks and let Pastor Jonathan answer that question for you. So Paul has really pushed all his chips to the middle of the table and says, this is the gospel. And he also says, this is what my life's about. This is my mission, to let everyone in the world know what I am telling you. This is not just the thesis statement of my letter to you. This is my passion. Let me ask you three questions. What are you passionate about? Second question, how would I know? Third question, what do you do to cultivate that passion? What's your passion? How would I know? What do you do to cultivate that passion? I'm passionate about my family. If I consider the successes of the Last 35 years of vocational ministry, top of the list is the fact that my wife loves me, loves Jesus, 
and doesn't resent the church, that my adult children love me, love Jesus, and don't resent the church, and that they married spouses who, surprisingly, love me, <laughs> love Jesus, and don't resent the church. They're my passion. And you would say, well, how can we know that? And I would say to you, because in a, in a vocation where a lot of times families get caught in the wash through the failure of the preacher, not through the failure generally of the church, but through the failure of the preacher, I've prioritized them. I mean, I won't let anybody interrupt me if I'm in counseling with someone or if I'm talking to one of you or if I'm talking to one of the staff members unless it's my family. They know that. They know that I will never not pick up the phone regardless of what I'm doing. So I could point to something like that and say I, I prioritize them. Well, what do you do to cultivate that passion? I spend time with them. There's there's literally no one on the planet that I would rather spend time with than my wife and, and our extended family. I mean, I would swap out time with anyone or anything else to spend time with them. In fact, I'll tell you, tell you this. This coming Tuesday night, I've had the opportunity to sit in a suite at Kauffman Stadium and watch a Royals game with authors whose books I've read and who have challenged me and changed my life, with preachers who are known nationally, whose ministries have, have impacted me, and I'm not going. Why? Well, because Julie can't go. Caleb can't go. Danny wouldn't want to go to a game with me, but... Uh, <laughs> but they can't, I just don't care to go. I don't care to have that experience without them present. So, passionate about my family. How do I know? I prioritize them. How do you cultivate that passion? I just, I never can spend enough time with them. Now, let me ask this. Are you passionate for the gospel? How would we know? How do you cultivate that passion? Here's what I, I know after years of doing this and also through 55 plus years of looking at me in the mirror every day. Most of us aren't as passionate for the gospel as we'd like to think we are or that we would like others to think we are. I also know this. I know that most of us when really forced to deal with our really very tepid response to the gospel. I want to know what can we do to cultivate passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Using Paul's words to us today as a frame of reference, let me give you three ways to cultivate passion for the gospel. Number one, live in the power of the gospel. Live in its power. What do I mean by that? Live with the notion, with the understanding, cultivate the understanding, the real experience viscerally in you that the only hope you have before God 
is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That Christ has done it all, period. And there's nothing you can add to that. Live with that. Paul's passionate for the gospel. Part of the reason he's passionate for the gospel is because he lived that idea that it's Jesus and only Jesus that can save. In fact, in a wonderful passage of scripture in a book called Philippians chapter 3, it's about 50, 60 pages to your right from where you are in Romans. He is kind of rehearsing his moral and religious credentials. He's sharing his LinkedIn profile spiritually with the people of Philippi, trying to drive home that it's Jesus and only Jesus that saves, essentially by saying, if anybody in the world could be saved by their morality and their religion, I could. Here's what he says. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm better than you at religion and morality. I'm better than you. Can you imagine? He would have been fun at parties, wouldn't he? And then he begins to rehearse the criteria of the Jewish religion, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm doing this better than anybody else. And then he begins to unpack how he's doing it better than anyone else. He says, um, as to the law of Pharisee, I'm a member of the most stringent sect of Judaism who are zealous for keeping the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, I was so fired up for the Jewish religion and, and so, so deeply convicted it was the hope for mankind that when I heard about this heresy called Christianity, I was on the front lines trying to root it out, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, as to the ability to keep the law of Moses, look what he says, blameless, blameless. No wonder, if he feels this way about himself, he's saying no one has more reason to have confidence in their morality and their religion to save them than I would. And you know what it's worth to me? Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. It's loss. It's not helpful. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as, look at that, rubbish. The English Standard Translation has done me a favor here because it has delicately, delicately interpreted a word in Paul's language that if I were to translate literally here would fill my inbox from preschool parents saying, why did you teach my kid that word in church? It's not a swear word. It's important to know that. It's not a swear word. But it's coarse and it's shocking. Some English translations get closer with the word dung. I look at all I have proven with my life. And do you know what it has earned me? Nothing. Do you know what it is? It's dung. It's horse manure. Paul lived in the power that it wasn't on him. It wasn't something God was calling him to do. God was calling him to place his faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Live in the power of that. Spend time thinking on that. And then next, live in the peace of the gospel. 
live in the peace of the gospel. If I were to go back through my calendar over the years and look at the number one reason people request an appointment with me, it would be because they just don't feel saved anymore. I just don't feel saved. I don't know if I'm saved. And so they'll meet with me. And almost all the time they are. (laughs) They are genuinely saved. Sometimes it's because deep sin has come into their lives and they've been in rebellion against God and they need to repent of that sin and restore the intimacy of that relationship with Christ. And at that point, if they're unwilling to do so, then I do say, well, I don't think you're saved either. But most people just don't feel like they're measuring up. So they don't feel saved. I I don't know about you. I've been saved. I've been saved. I've been a follower of Jesus for 44 years, 43 years. I sure thought I'd be further along. I, I, I sure thought I'd have my act together more. I think a lot of people feel that way. And then when a faulty understanding of the gospel begins to latch on to that idea that we've got so far to go, we begin to think, well, I've just not done enough to keep my salvation, but if you understand that it's Jesus and Jesus alone, that will overwhelm you with peace and say, yes, like Paul later on in Philippians chapter 3, I need to continue to press forward for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I need to continue to push myself to be more obedient, more a reflection of his godliness and his character in this world. But when I stumble and fall, going to the wonderful benediction at the end of the book of Jude, now to him who is able to keep me from stumbling, from losing my salvation, and cause me to stand in the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before time and now and forevermore. Amen. That gives peace. And peace develops passion. And the last thing. Live in the providence of the gospel. There, there's so much theological weirdness in existence in the American church. But, but chief among the weirdness is really kind of the common notion that God got to the end of Old Testament and said, man, that didn't work. I'm going to have to come up with something new. I know what we'll do. And then the Jesus stream of relationship with God was born. That's not what happened. How do I know that's not what happened? Well, Paul's already alluded to it. He said, I'm not preaching to you something new. This was, this was in the Old Testament. See, it's here. It's here. It was written even there. But then if you look at the writings of the New Testament, you see over and over how this plan of God to save us through Jesus Christ was formed before the very foundation of the world. God is providentially brought all of humanity to the feet of the cross to make a decision about Jesus. And when we understand that this has been the plan of God all along, and then we understand that the power of God saved me in spite of myself and keeps me saved in spite of myself, then guess what? I want everybody to know that. I want everybody to know that this has been the plan of God all along. 
I don't want to share it with everybody I know. And that is passion. That's what Paul was about. Yes, he had a very specific function in the early church in establishing the church on planet Earth. But the broad parameters of what he was called to do are true of every person in who names the name of Jesus. We have to have the same kind of passion that Paul had. And if just a fraction of the energy that we have spent arguing our positions on COVID and elections and a whole host of other things had been expended on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the last 20 months would have been a, a whole lot different. Our passion needs to be the gospel.